For all you elk hunters out there, chasing turkeys is basically the same thing. I know the reaction you just gave me, but don't knock it till you try it and don't try it without OnX. The Hunt app will not only help you find new areas on public ground, but I use it to find out landowner info to get permission on private ground that I see birds on as well. OnX Hunt has a special offer for you. Use code CAL to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com slash hunt and find more birds this spring. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. That's seafoamworks.com to learn more. Hey, I just sat down with the owners and operators of Maui Nui Venison. They're on a mission to balance access deer populations on Maui while giving back to the community and run a totally sustainable operation. For folks like me who want to get your own meat but aren't always successful, you can become a snack subscriber, get some Axis Deer sticks sent right to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I Venison.com and use promo code CAL for 20% off your first order. From Mediator's World News Headquarters in Bozeman, Montana, this is Cal's Week in Review, presented by Steel. Steel products are available only at authorized dealers. For more, go to steeldealers.com. Now, here's your host, Ryan Cal Callahan. A new study from the University of Montana has found that wolves infected with parasites are more likely to be pack leaders than wolves that aren't. Thanks to Carl Kaufman for sending this one in. Toxoplasmosis is a parasite we've discussed several times on the show. This parasite requires being inside a cat in order to reproduce, which, even in the world of kinkiness, is pretty far out there, or in there. Deer can be infected if they eat grass in proximity to cat feces, and humans can catch the parasite by eating infected deer or goats. Mahalo, Danny Bolton. One of the crazy things about toxoplasmosis is that it appears to lower the inhibitions of the animals it infects. Since it needs to get back to a cat to reproduce, it has a biological incentive to kill its host. Infected rodents have been shown to be less afraid of cats and more willing to explore, and infected humans create more testosterone and dopamine and take more risks. Risk-taking behavior can land you in trouble, but sometimes there is an upside. A new study found that it's not all bad, at least if you're a wolf. Led by wildlife ecologists Connor Meyer and Kira Cassidy, the team looked at 256 blood samples from 229 wolves living in Yellowstone National Park. The life histories of those wolves have been carefully recorded, so the team knew where each wolf stood in the pecking order. They found that wolves infected with toxoplasmosis were 11 times more likely than parasite-free wolves to leave their birth pack to start a new pack. Infected wolves were also an astounding 46 times more likely to become pack leaders. This begs the question, have we been misjudging toxoplasmosis? Instead of a life-threatening parasite, could toxo be the key to wealth and success? I can just see the Joe Rogan-endorsed health pills now. 
be the top dog, take these Toxo pills, and lose your inhibitions. Coming to a GNC near you. Side effects may include not being a follower, as well as headaches, confusion, muscle fatigue, paranoia, seizures. This week, we've got predator contests, crabby energy, legislation, and so much more. But first, I'm going to tell you about my week. And my week was great. Thanksgiving is easily the best holiday. It coincides with the end of the general rifle season here in Montana. So I am typically outside for a good portion of that holiday, burning calories while looking for ways to replenish them. This year, a snowstorm and severe cold front rolled through, breaking into above freezing temps, which of course turns ice into water and eastern Montana dirt into binding muck. On this particular trip, the old Toyota threw the four-wheel drive, which made me real familiar with the mud. From the top of my knit beanie to the tread of my boots, I made up for the fact that I have managed to avoid situations in which I had to put tire chains on for most of my adult life by putting them on and taking them off. Putting them on and taking them off. Belly down in mud, ice, and snow melt. Keep in mind, I am a conservative driver, very conscious to not tear up roads, and twice the mud got us so bad that deer hunt was partially sacrificed. Each night, however, we got to cook and sit in absolute comfort in the old Black Series camper, listening to that eastern Montana wind and the furnace do battle. I'm getting soft, boys and girls. But, man, I didn't have to come home. That was a choice. The girlfriend got her first ever whitetail buck, the only deer of the trip, only animal of the trip, which was very sad for old Snorticus. After a first night miss, which was her first ever miss, she rallied with a well-placed shot at 130 yards the next morning on a good-looking young whitetail buck. Caught this fella out tending a doe, which is the case the last week of the season. This was an interesting experience as the shot placement was good, slightly high, and the buck didn't react at all. He just kept chasing his doe. I was 99% positive he was hit, After all, I was watching through 10 by 50s at 130 yards, but the buck gave no signs of injury until at least 90 seconds after the primer was dented. I bet he stayed on his feet for almost 10 minutes. Then, eventually, begrudgingly laid down. This was not a great scene. I, like probably everyone listening, prefer the instant gratification of a quick or instantaneous death. Hooves in the air. No questions need be asked. Dead but this was not the case. I lean toward bullet selection as the reason. 140 grain burgers were used, and despite a fist-sized hole on the exit, I just don't believe any expansion of that round happened within the body cavity, nor was there any apparent shock delivered to the buck at 130 yards. Inspection of the vitals revealed the path of the bullet only hit the top of one lung, which probably meant that what we were waiting on was the body cavity in front of the diaphragm to fill up with enough blood to asphyxiate the buck. This is a competition-style target round, as I would later find out. Do your research ahead of time, not in the field, is a good lesson. I know people do use these as hunting rounds, but from what I have seen, they are definitely not a hunting round. So, that's lesson one. And lesson two for all hunters, a reminder for the old hunter, a primer for the new hunter. My girlfriend is three seasons into her hunting career. 
I try to provide a lot of space for her to learn, as I believe this is the best way to become a lifelong hunter. Don't have everything handed to you. You got to figure some stuff out. This scene was traumatic. Everything she has shot prior to this has died fast, if not instantly. I don't know the previous rounds used, but I do know the round that we started with three seasons ago, which is trophy copper ammunition. Regardless, the lesson that was reinforced is one of the most important, I believe. Squeezing that trigger is final. There is no putting the bullet back in the gun. You, the hunter, are tied to the bullet and what that bullet does when it leaves the casing. It's kind of messed up to think that when we consider all the things that could happen when a bullet leaves the gun, a whitetail buck taking too long for our liking or taste or morals to expire is still on the pretty darn good side of the spectrum. But at the same time, it's a heavy thing to witness. Responsibility is tough, and I believe experiences like this lead to very responsible hunters. The imagery of a slowly expiring deer sticks with us, and we don't want to repeat it, which is why we spend more time at the range. We do our research on our bullet selection, our calibers, and we shoot within our means. Lots of room to improve out there for all of us, old and new. Moving on to the power desk. One of the greatest challenges conservationists will face over the next decade is what to do about batteries. So-called clean forms of energy like solar and wind don't use fossil fuels and are much better for the environment than coal or natural gas plants. However, in order to store and use that clean electricity, we need batteries. Batteries aren't great for the environment, especially the lithium ones we use in everything from laptops to Teslas. On the front end, lithium mining has been linked to water contamination, and cobalt mining has been linked to environmental damage and pollution, not to mention other social ills like child labor. On the back end, it's unclear exactly what we're going to do with all those batteries once they wear out. If everyone switched from gas-powered vehicles to electric cars overnight, the battery waste in 7 or 10 years would be an environmental catastrophe. That's why researchers have been hard at work developing batteries that don't pollute either on the front end or the back end. One idea that caught my eye uses crab shells and zinc to create what the inventors say is a fully biodegradable and recyclable battery. First reported in a journal called Matter, the battery is fully rechargeable at least 1,000 times, which makes it powerful enough to be used in the power grid. Researchers from the University of Maryland, crabs in Maryland are synonymous, so no surprise there, and the University of Houston set out to create a zinc-based battery. According to an article in the outlet Anthropocene, zinc is much more abundant than any other battery metals. But for reasons we won't go into right now, zinc batteries can be unsafe and short-lived. So, the team of researchers made a new biodegradable gel electrolyte from chitosan, a compound derived from chitin, which is spelled C-H-I-T-I-N. Chitin is the protein that makes up the tough shells of crustaceans, such as crabs, lobsters, and shrimps. Chitin is usually thrown away as a byproduct of processing these crustaceans, and it's been used widely in the biomedical industry. Both the chitosan electrolyte and the cathode material biodegrade in soil in a few months, and the zinc left behind can be recycled. Whether lobsters end up powering the green new world remains to be seen. It's a long road from scientific journal 
to real-world success, and this wouldn't be the first promising development to crumble when the rubber meets the road. My skin also kind of crawls a bit whenever I hear about a new way we're using animals in the marketplace, but at the same time, we have a growing invasive green crab population that, you know, we can't put all into whiskey bottles. Still, this one will be fascinating to watch. If nothing else, it's another reminder that no matter how advanced our technology becomes, we'll never be able to totally isolate ourselves from the natural world and the amazing materials within. It also makes me wonder if the marketing team at Energizer tanked this idea years ago because rabbits pulled higher amongst the core demographic. I mean, that's crazy talk, I know. This idea is great for the environment, so people will just buy it, right? Crabs only kind of look like spiders. Instead of fluffy bunnies, people will make the right decision, right? Ernest Hemingway once wrote, The world is a fine place and worth fighting for. I agree with the second part. Sorry, let, let's back up to something more snappy. With the future of crab-based batteries on the rise, the old Energizer bunny might just get a pinch. How's that? Yeah. It's good. Moving on to a packed legislative desk. First, a few updates for you. All you Mitten State residents still have a chance to weigh in on the proposed expansion of Camp Grayling in northern Michigan. The expansion would incorporate about 162,000 acres of state forest land within the camp's lease. Hunters and public land recreators are concerned how this will affect hunting and angling on those acres, and you can hear more about the proposed project in episode 170. As of this recording, the Michigan Department of Natural Resources is still considering whether or not to approve the lease. You can submit your comments to dnr-camp-grayling at michigan.gov. Oregon's ballot measure 114, which we covered in episode 180, passed on an insanely close 50.7 to 49.3 vote. That's less than one and a half point spread and equaled about 27,000 votes out of the nearly 2 million votes cast. Thanks to those 27,000 people, Oregonians will now be living under one of the strictest gun controlled regimes in the country. Prospective firearm owners will be required to take a course, pass a test, and undergo extensive background checks on top of the federal checks everyone must already pass. Magazines holding more than 10 rounds of ammunition are also banned. Oregonians have been purchasing firearms at a record pace to get ahead of the December 8th deadline. By that time, state police are supposed to release guidelines for the new permitting process, though it's unclear if they'll be able to put together such a complicated system in that time frame. Uh, I would say no. If they don't, gun sales throughout the state may be halted until the new permitting process is finalized. And speaking of Oregon, the state's Department of Fish and Wildlife will consider a petition on December 16th, so not this Friday, but next Friday, that would ban all coyote calling contests in the state. The petition was submitted by an animal rights group called Project Coyote, Arizona, California, Colorado, and New Mexico have already passed similar bans, and Project Coyote has more recently been targeting Oregon and Nevada in their efforts to end these contests. A bill along similar lines was also proposed and rejected in Tennessee last year, which you can hear more about in episode 155. Opponents of coyote calling contests make several contradictory arguments. On the one hand, as this Oregon petition goes to great lengths to explain, These contests don't do much to control coyote populations long-term. 
They may reduce the population in the short term, and that temporary reduction can help farmers and ranchers if they're dealing with an overabundance of coyotes. However, there isn't much evidence that a single contest will have a long-term impact. Based on this assumption, Project Coyote and others argue that coyote contests are frivolous and therefore go against the North American model of wildlife conservation. You should read the petition for yourselves. In my opinion, applying public pressure to abundant coyote populations where they are actually posing a problem via holding a contest is a tool in the management tool belt. Where this tool falls short of intended purpose is when the contests are held not for the purpose of knocking back an overabundant population of predators in favor of a faltering or low prey population, or in the case of above average livestock deaths, but the contests are held for non-agricultural or hunting-related economic interests of a county. Is there a case for more oversight of coyote contests? Probably. I would say sure. Anytime wildlife and money meet, we have issues. Do we need to outlaw this tool completely? Well, that's for you to decide. If you live in Oregon, you have until December 16th to weigh in. Email the commission at odfw.commission at odfw.oregon.gov or attend the meeting in person on December 16th. For all you elk hunters out there, chasing turkeys is basically the same thing. I know the reaction you just gave me, but don't knock it till you try it and don't try it without OnX. The Hunt app will not only help you find new areas on public ground, but I use it to find out landowner info to get permission on private ground that I see birds on as well. OnX Hunt has a special offer for you. Use code CAL to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com hunt and find more birds this spring. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time. Seafoam motor treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. It's really simple. When you pour it in your gas tank, seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can in your gas tank and let it clean your fuel system. You probably know someone who has used a can of seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. I guarantee you've listened to them because I use it you know, regularly. People everywhere rely on seafoam to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. Help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop 
for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. Over in Washington, the Wildlife Commission has dealt a death blow to the state's spring black bear hunt. The Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife supported the hunt, and its yearly approval has been a routine formality since 1999. However, in recent years, animal rights groups have been successful in influencing the commission against the hunt, and Governor Jay Inslee's recent appointments have all come out in opposition to it. That long-term campaign succeeded last week as the commission voted 5-4 to to end black bear hunting during the spring season. This goes without saying, but hunters vehemently opposed the ban, and thousands have expressed their concern to the commission over the last two years. We've covered this story before, and you can read more about it on the Meat Eater website. Basically, opponents of the hunt argue that it's cruel to kill bears when they're weak and have cubs in the spring, and they question whether the state really knows how many bears are on the landscape. As we've covered many, many times, population studies of any animal are estimates. Nobody knows exactly how many there are. A lot of trees, a lot of bushes out there. Supporters point out that the spring hunt can be an effective way to manage bear populations and that the current black bear population is healthy and thriving. Commissioner Don McIsaac also pointed out that the commission's mandate calls for maintaining the state's traditional hunting practices. If there's a traditional hunting and fishing season there, I think the mandate says keep that going if you can. The law and hunting, when I read that stuff, says do what you can to keep traditional hunting going unless there's a conservation problem with doing so, and then shut it down. As of right now, there isn't a science-based, conservation-related reason to end the spring bear hunt. The bear population is doing fine by all available data, and the spring hunt didn't remove that many bears. The commission should be seeking to maximize those hunting opportunities not eliminating an entire season based on uncertainty and conjecture. This decision does allow the Department of Fish and Wildlife to request future black bear hunts, but only in order to address specific management issues. Unless the commission has a change of heart, there will be no more spring bear hunt in Washington. The fall hunt is still on, but at this point, Washingtonians should be asking themselves how long that's going to last. If it's cruel to kill bears in the spring, It seems like it's cruel to kill them in the fall when sows are pregnant and trying to get fat in preparation for winter. One of my favorite arguments against the spring bear hunt was the weaponizing of the word recreation. The commission seemed to not be against bear hunting, but recreational bear hunting. So, here's just, you know, some ideas, some food for thought. How much of what we do in our lives goes beyond necessity and slides into recreation? Are we going to start villainizing recreation all across the board? Seems like a tough thing for state and federal agencies to do. Here's a, just a for instance for you. What I like to do with spring bear is dry brine a big ham and smoke it. This takes, you know, a couple of days from the start to the finish. This is not the only way to enjoy spring bear meat. It sure takes a long time. It's not efficient. Does that mean it's recreational cooking? I think it does. I'm a frequent overeater. Where is the line between healthy and recreational eating? I could go on, but suffice it to say, 
the social part of social science is running fast away from the science part of social science in Washington. And speaking of slippery slopes, several of you Canucks wrote in to tell me about the new rifle ban being proposed by Canada's Liberal Party. Canadian politicians allied with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau included an 11th hour amendment to an existing crappy gun bill that would ban millions of semi-automatic rifles and shotguns. The amendment would ban, quote, any rifle or shotgun that is capable of discharging centerfire ammunition in a semi-automatic manner and that is designed to accept a detachable cartridge magazine with a capacity greater than five cartridges. The ban would not include semi-automatic shotguns that use a tubular magazine, but ownership of virtually any other semi-automatic rifle or scattergun would be prohibited. Canada already bans AR pattern rifles, but Trudeau's government believes that isn't enough to address Canada's rising rates of homicide. Since handguns are the most commonly used weapon in firearm-related homicides, I'm not sure this is going to help that much. The Canadian Shooting Sports Association says the amendment would criminalize the majority of Canada's 2.2 million legal gun owners, and a Canadian gun rights group called it, quote, the largest gun ban in Canadian history. If you'd like to weigh in as a law-abiding gun owner who stands to be made an outlaw by doing nothing wrong, get in touch with your member of parliament. Last one for you. In Illinois, the legislature is currently considering a bill that would greatly increase public access to waterways in the state. Thanks to John Happ for sending this one in. Over the summer, the Illinois Supreme Court voted unanimously in favor of a landowner who barred public access to a stream that flowed through his property. In a previous ruling, the state Supreme Court ruled that only, quote, navigable waterways are open to the public. It defined navigable as of sufficient depth to afford a channel for use for commerce. In other words, unless the river is deep enough to float a commercial boat, a landowner can deny access to it. However, in their ruling in favor of the landowner, two of the justices urged the legislature to take up this issue to expand water access. This year, the legislature is doing just that. HB 5844 would expand the definition of navigable to include rivers or streams that can be used by commercial and recreational craft for a substantial part of the year. There's still quite a bit of wiggle room in that definition, but as it currently reads, it seems like most waterways would be open to the public if you can float a kayak down them for most of the year. If you live in Illinois, get in touch with your state representatives. If you recreate in Illinois but don't live there, get in touch with state representatives in the areas you do play in about HB 5844. That's House Bill 5844. Moving on to the Citizen Science Desk. A hunter is being credited with launching an expedition that spotted a bird that hadn't been seen in 140 years. Thanks to Jenna Novick for sending this one in. The critically endangered black-naped pheasant pigeon hadn't been sighted by researchers since 1882. For a little context, that's the year Chester A. Arthur was president, polygamy was first deemed a federal felony, Jesse James was shot, and Thomas Edison established the first commercial electrical power plant in lower Manhattan. So, you know, lots happened. Anyway, the black-naped pheasant pigeon lives on the 500-square-mile Ferguson Island, off the coast of southeast Papua New Guinea. Papua New Guinea is an island just north of Australia. A local hunter named Augustine Gregory first reported that he'd seen the ground-dwelling bird and heard its calls. 
a team of researchers with the Papua New Guinea National Museum, Cornell Lab of Ornithology, and the American Bird Conservancy arrived in September and lived there for about a month. They set up trail cams in likely areas but didn't see the bird until two days before they were set to leave. That's when a postdoctoral researcher named Jordan Borsma spotted the small, black and orange feathered bird walking right past the camera. This isn't the first time they've tried to document evidence of the bird's existence. They launched a similar expedition in 2019, but it wasn't until they got a hot tip from a hunter that they were able to be successful. The total black-naped pheasant pigeon population is uncertain, but the IUCN, the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, estimates that between 50 and 249 birds exist in the wild. The pheasant pigeon is a large, terrestrial pigeon that feeds on seeds and fallen fruits, the loss of forest habitat due to logging and subsistence agriculture is likely the cause of its decline. And let's be honest, cats, right? Anyway, researchers are hoping these new images will jumpstart a conservation effort as there is currently very little being done to protect the endangered and tasty looking bird. Moving on to the predator desk. A new study by researchers in Alaska claims that the state's predator control programs have had no impact on the moose population in Game Management Unit 13. This management unit is located in the south-central portion of the state and is a popular moose hunting destination. The study considered programs that targeted wolves, brown bears, and black bears, and correlated those program numbers to the moose population over the last four decades. The study's authors claim that these predator control programs had zero impact on the moose population within this game management unit. Quote, whatever factors cause fluctuations in moose harvest over time in GMU-13, the number of predators killed was not significant as being one of them. Regardless of how we sorted the available data, we were unable to detect a positive relationship between kill numbers of any predator species and subsequent moose harvests. The graphs included in the study demonstrate that while the bear harvest increased between 1973 and 2020, the moose harvest remained relatively consistent. The number fluctuated widely year to year, but over the course of the last 47 years, the moose harvest didn't change all that much. The wolf harvest, meanwhile, increased gradually since 1990 with a peak in 2001 and then declined after 2004, except for a peak in 2018. These numbers aren't really disputed, but there is a great deal of debate in Alaska about why the moose harvest fluctuates and whether predator management programs have anything to do with it. Some argue that wolf management programs have a beneficial short-term effect on the moose population. Tom Paragi, a research scientist with the Alaska Department of Fish and Game, pointed out to the Anchorage Daily News that the moose harvest nearly doubled after wolf control started in the unit in 2002. It eventually returned to the levels hunters were seeing before predator control was banned in the early 1990s. Looking at the graph, it's clear that the moose harvest reached a low point in 2001 before gradually beginning to rise until it hit mid-1990s level. This could indicate that targeting wolves had a beneficial effect on the moose population. However, as the researchers note in the study, 2001 was also the year policymakers changed the definition of a legally harvested moose to a harder to obtain, I'll say in quote, trophy class of an additional brow tine requirement necessitating a minimum of four total brow tines on at least one side. 
Prior to this change, the minimum brow tine requirement was three on one side with a minimum width of 50 inches. And just so you know, prior to 1993, that width requirement was only 36 inches. Another explanation for the dip and slow rise is that hunters were becoming acclimated to these new policies. We all know how fishermen are with reading a tape measure. Well, you know, moose hunters are the same people. The debates over predator and ungulate populations often look exactly like this. One side argues that it's all about the wolves, while the other side points out all the other factors like disease and weather that also significantly impact moose, elk, and deer populations. The truth is that no one really knows for sure. It's almost impossible to tease out the effect of a single factor in a complex natural system, and anyone who says otherwise is lying or misinformed or just desperate to make a complicated world simple. I get it. But that doesn't mean hunters or biologists can ignore studies like this. If predator management isn't having the desired effect, wouldn't it be better to know sooner rather than later? That way, we can use those dollars and resources pursuing solutions that actually help populations of animals we love to hunt, rather than solutions that feel good and seem right, but maybe don't work. That's all I've got for you this week. Thank you so much for listening. Remember to write in to A-S-K-C-A-L, that's askcal at meateater.com and let me know what's going on in your neck of the woods. Also, if you're looking for a clean, quiet way to knock out yard debris, stoke up a fire, and make you look like a pro while you're doing it, go to www.steeldealers.com and find a local, knowledgeable steel dealer near you. They're going to get you set up with what you need, and they won't try to send you home with what you don't. Thanks again, and I'll talk to you next week. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and burnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. That's seafoamworks.com to learn more. Hey, I just sat down with the owners and operators of Maui Nui Venison. They're on a mission to balance access deer populations on Maui while giving back to the community and run a totally sustainable operation. For folks like me who want to get your own meat but aren't always successful, you can become a snack subscriber, get some Axis Deer sticks sent right to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I Venison.com and use promo code CAL for 20% off your first order.